Welcome to The Looking Glass, a podcast exploring the relationship between people and their creativity. I'm Neil Cowley, and this week I'm talking to British printmaker Angie Lewin. Having graduated from the Central School of Art and Design in the mid-80s, Angie very quickly carved out a reputation for her unique style of design. Combining a love of Eric Revillius and Edward Borden with an intricate talent for creating an alternative and insectized view of the flora around her in her Norfolk home. She now divides her time drawing, painting and designing in her home in Speyside, Scotland, and running the St Jude's franchise with her husband Simon, which provides an outlet to the work of many other artists and designers. This interview was recorded in early June 2020. So how are you, Angie? Yeah, very well, thank you, very well. Yeah, and you? I'm all right, yeah. Simon was saying to me the other day, uh, your husband Simon was saying that um, this is not much different from you, from normal kind of life, because uh, you, I guess that means that you spend a lot of time in a solitary place anyway, doing what you do. Is that is that Yeah. True? Yeah, it's completely true. It's sort of, yeah, I work in isolation a lot, obviously in the studio. A lot of the inspiration comes from landscape, being outdoors, and I like to do that as much as I can on my own. I feel, always feel slightly resentful if, if I'm walking on a beach and somebody else happens to be on that beach. You know, I like that sense of, right. you know, yeah, it's quite timeless when you're on your own in the landscape, so I really enjoy that. So, But, yes, this working in isolation during lockdown is not that different but the weird thing was it did feel very different to start with yeah it, it's it's funny actually you've almost sort of jumped you've leapfrogged a whole bunch of questions i had because you talked about being on the beach on your own mm. um and and enjoying that and, and enjoying the solitary part of that and then i was i was i was i've been going very deeply into your work uh over the past few days i mean i, I should say that, that that your work is a is a mainstay of my household anyway because um there are a lot of devotees around me of yeah. yours um <laughs> and um your your artwork and everything about you and um my wife in particular happens to own quite a lot of the crockery that you seem to own um what's that marvelous designer of the coronation oh er, er, vilius yes who i understand is a big influence of yours oh massive influence yeah 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 so so there's a lot of that around my house which is why myself and my son aren't allowed to play any kind of ball games in the house so that's kind of your fault i think Um, (laughs) i'm sorry about that A whole, whole career in sport that's been. <laughs> oh no, he makes up for it. Don't worry. Um, but um, yes, yeah, so I, I'm I'm deeply immersed in it, and I and I I was I was thinking deeply about how where the human element comes into it. Um, humans don't feature an enormous amount if in your in your art. Is that no, is that a fair not, comment? They don't. They don't. And actually, that's something I. I incidentally discovered I had in common with Revilius. He very rarely has figures in any of his work. Mm. Um, And it's been sort of commented on before, and I've sort of thought about why is it that I don't include people um, or even animals, to be honest. There's evidence that animals might have been there in the terms of there may be like a leaf that's been nibbled by an insect or something like that. Mm. And I seem to, when I'm drawing, get down at ground level, so I'm almost at the level of an insect or a small Mm. mammal when I'm drawing. Um, It isn't only down to the fact that perhaps... I feel more comfortable drawing plants, um, that sort of thing, rather than the human figure. Um, But I feel very much part of the landscape. And I think Mm. maybe that's the thing about my work that people maybe respond to is the sense of them being in the landscape and relating to it on a very direct level. And there's a very timeless quality, as I said before. If you're walking on a beach, particularly if there's nobody else there, It could be at any time, particularly, say, if you're in the Outer Hebrides, where there's nothing to, mm. to say that man has ever been there. The landscape, the, the rocks mm. have been there for billions of years. The plants have existed in that way. So, yeah, I think it, there is a strange thing about me not featuring the human form in my work, but I think possibly that's why 
I work the way I do and why people respond to my work. Well, someone said, uh, uh, I think you almost just quoted them then, or it's, or it's a quote directly from you, that you have an insect's eye view, um, and, and which I think is absolutely true. I think, mm. I think, and do you think also that um, humanity has the effect of, of um, disturbing the absolute stillness, perhaps, which you feel when you look at your seed pods or your grasses or your weeds even? Do you, do you feel that, that humanity can disturb that, that meditation that you have? Possibly, yeah. And actually, um, I, when, you know, we live partly in Edinburgh, but mainly up on Speyside. For a long time, I only lived in the country and I really got to a point where I thought I'm going to have to start spending more time around people because actually if anybody made any noise, if the man in the next garden used a strimmer, it's like I could just feel myself thinking, oh, you know, so. Yeah, um, I know I th- that feeling. Yeah, and I think I think we all have that. I think, and there's mm-hmm. a lot of, you know, it's very sort of fashionable to talk about mindfulness and all yeah. this being good to yourself. There is a quality of looking at nature in a very direct way with no other um, input yeah. That is incredibly beneficial to us, um, yes. and I it mean, is yeah, timeless. You, you say mindfulness. I mean, th- th- I've contemplated this a lot over the recent weeks because obviously we're talking to each other during lockdown, mm. um, and um, we—it's been imposed upon us that we have this stillness. And some people can cope with it, and some people can't. And some people can cope with it for an amount of time, and then some people have a line which which gets crossed, and then they suddenly start going crazy yeah um i think i'm i have a line i can i can certainly embrace it i've i've done i mean i come from a very different field music and music is obviously very communal social but it's also at the at the point of composition i i most often find that i i i require that stillness that you talk about and the streamer yeah. from next door will irritate me yeah. and make me cross um so i go i go very deep within and i go some might say dark um in order to mine th- those feelings and mine that art but then at some point i have to come out because it, it, if i stay there it can it can get a bit grim uh, and i have to sort of stage manage my whole existence and i have to socialize and and then ultimately you know a live gig would be the 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 um the uh the uh, manifestation of of that needing to socialize but of course at the moment we don't have that choice yes and actually because it is interesting the way that you work because i imagine it's exactly the same you can completely absorbed in composing and just the act of playing and whether that's going well or badly for you and you're completely in that zone Mm. but you have a complete contradiction or maybe contradiction of saying right now i I've got to perform, I'm going to perform live, or just the collaborative aspect of creating mm. music, which mm. I think, in my case, I collaborate on certain projects. You know, I'll mm. sort of collaborate from designing a fabric or from working on a book illustration, uh, or if I'm teaching, which I do sometimes. I actually enjoy that contrast, and I think it's good for me mm. because I honestly, especially when we're up on Speyside, if Simon was away... I could be in that house on the side of that hill on my own mm. for four days. And, you know, there'd be no people around. You could see the little places dotted around. I absolutely love that isolation and it's vital to what I do. Yeah. Mm. But then when I go and collaborate, I said, oh, I'm really enjoying getting this feedback from somebody else. Because yeah, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not actually very sort of, um, what's the word? obsessed with my own work to the extent that I don't mind somebody else right yeah getting involved so if I'm doing an edition with a, a printer like a master printer who's going to print my screen prints for me we work together over the course of like three or four days mm. I love that toing and froing that you get with a person mm. um well, and it's, I it's, benefit yeah well uh, here's a question for you because I've touched on this in other podcasts I've done when I'm in a happy place or rather if I'm relaxed and if I'm socializing I tend to I tend to move towards the soulful end of music. So when I sit down at a piano, I'll play really um, warm and social and and soulful chords. Um, and I, I, you know, like my favourite thing to do, my happiest place where I just it's all just kind of flowing out of me is to play in a soul band. I mean, mm. that, that's my ultimate. Is and it's and it's so about bouncing off others. 
but then I do have this requirement, or, or I've, I've carved out this involuntary niche where my music, my, the, the music that I put my name to, has to be from that originally from that solitary place. So I'm wondering if you're in your collaborations, whether there is the equivalent of soul music in your collaborations, a, a, a type of art or a, a way of working that is purely, you don't even have to think, it's purely feeling, or are the two completely combined at all times? Um, oh, so the kind of work I would produce when collaborating has a different... Yes. Yeah. It doesn't really, partly because the artwork has to be made before. So say yeah. that I'm doing a screen print, I'll have created all the film artwork for the different colours in each layer of the screen print mm. so that's already been done in my studio from sketchbook store sketchbook drawings mm. so it's literally the the final bit where i'm collaborating in that instance though it does change depending on who i'm working with mm. because um a really good uh, master printer who helps you and will edition your work can ad- subtly and what's so great about a really good printer like that is they can subtly advise you in a way which makes you think the whole thing was your idea mm. um but so the work does change in that collaborative process mm. um but it still relates to my original concept of the image because that was worked on for a long period of time in the studio yes. um but there is a subtle difference that comes mm. through collaboration um, yeah, I mean, I was reading about your early life because you went to St. Martin's, is that correct? Yeah, well, I went to Central School of Art, Central. which when I was there in the second year, it was joined with St. Martin's, became Central mm. St. Martin's, yeah. Yeah, and, and and I think that you lived in north-east London for a while. Was that just after that? or? Yeah, so when me and Simon got together, we were living in Hackney. Prior to that, I was like South London, sort mm. of Brixton area. And, and you, and, um, you did a, a horticultural course is that correct yeah. or you studied horticulture yeah well that, that was because <laughs> i when i i did fine art at college fine art printmaking and um i got my first illustration commission while i was at college which was fantastic and i got into doing illustration and it was quite i was actually quite busy it was at the late 80s when there was lots of money sloshing around spending on advertising mm. and packaging and all this kind of thing so it was good but i sort of got to a point um, where I was working on my own. I ha- wasn't having to go and see art directors because the work just was faxed to me because it was pre-email. And um, I thought, I need to I need to get out. I felt as though my work was just in this sort of lower b- basement flat. I was just working and working on illustrations. Mm. So, yeah, I decided, and I'd always loved the landscape, gardening my dad was a fantastic gardener so yeah I went to study horticulture and then garden design at Capel Manor which is out in Enfield and um, it was just it was absolutely brilliant and that then fed into the work that I do now. So was was there a marked difference would would, would, we, would we call this the pre-horticulture period for you then in terms of what you were you were producing in your basement or was it still yeah. in the same under the same principle it was basically when I was at college my work was I've always had this thing as a child I would draw the same thing day after day after day to a point where I think my parents thought I was a bit odd so like I would draw mallard ducks this is probably when I was about five kept on drawing them kept on and on drawing them and I could my dad saying just draw something else and I think oh I'm quite happy I'll just draw another duck um and (laughs) That's how I've always been. I, I kind of work on something, then that evolves into the next thing. It's never a sudden, I'm going to draw an architectural subject, then I'm going to draw a person. It was always yep. evolved. So, But prior to going to Capel Manor to do the garden design, I suppose work had been a lot... It had ended up being a lot of illustration for magazines. Mm. So I would draw whatever I was asked to do, basically. So it might be food, it might be gardening... It might be it might be a drawing of a building or a map. Um, Capel Manor and the garden design course. You had to study a plant. So ten, ten plants a week. You had to study in great detail, <laughs> and it was that that I thought I became obsessed with the sketchbooks we had to produce there. That became my main thing with these sketchbooks, and um, that became the work. We moved out of London, moved to the countryside. I'd walk the dog down the same track every day, see the Mm. same plants. So, yeah, there was a definite 
there was a change between prior to the garden design and, and post garden design. Yeah. So you said you said they uh, required you to to draw ten pieces a week or ten uh, ten yeah. items or articles a week. So would you? I'm just thinking back to your mallard duck. Would you still be on? Um, specimen one, having drawn it over te- uh, like for the entire week, <laughs> while the rest of your class finished their ten drawings. <laughs> no, what happened was <laughs> okay. you would go, you would go in, and there'd be ten jam jars with a sprig of I don't know oh. hazel, alcamilla mollis, foxglove, all these different things in, and you were meant yeah. to just draw them to capture how they would be used in a garden setting. So. What you were meant to do, this isn't what I did, what you were meant to do was do a very quick sketch, say, of an allium pom-pom and then describe how you grow it. What I would do is draw it in, in infinite detail plus all the yeah. cultivation notes. Then I'd, I'd do all the others, you know, really detailed drawing of them. Um, but through doing that, you learn how you would use them in a garden setting. And in fact, gar- designing a garden is not dissimilar to composing an image. Mm. You're com- you know, you can trust yeah. in shape and form and colour. Though mm. you've got time, obviously, comes into the equation when you decide a garden. So I definitely spent too long drawing them. Mm. Um, <laughs> but because, because that's your passion. Yeah. Of course. It, it yeah, just yeah. became... Studying a plant in detail, just... They are so fascinating. The yes. tiniest specimen can have the most amazing structure. Mm. And I don't think I'd ever realised that before. Um, yes, so you're, 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 you know, it's it's very. I'm, I can't help thinking of this, the evolution of the duck. I think it's a lovely phrase, anyway. But I'm, I'm also <laughs> thinking, um, you know, your 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 obsession or your love for detail is has become. It sounds like it's almost microscopic. But I'm wondering if there's a process whereby you 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 get into that microscopic detail with it, and then you come out the other side, and essentially you could almost paint that microscopic detail with one brush stroke. Because it's it, it it's been suggested to me that when when you look at your work, that it's the simplicity, it's the it's the ease with which you um, convey that petal, that mm. what you know that that piece of grass. It's it's the ease with which you do it. It's such a free movement. So, do you think that your 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 process is to get so deeply into it and then understand it so much that you can almost breathe it? Yeah, I think what it is is you, that you get you understand the detail, mm. or, or you you keep on drawing and and get the detail, but then you do you um, from that you you get the essence of the plant. So yes, mm. they are much more simple than um, the detail of the actual plant. It's sort of trying to capture the essence of the plant, but without botanical detail. Yes. And a garden designer that I know said, "I can recognise exactly what you've drawn." He said, but it, it almost doesn't look right. It is, it's not accurate. Yeah, And it's brilliant. because I, I focus in on certain plants. I don't, yeah. I, I don't sort of randomly draw lots of different things. Quite often I'll focus on, a, on the same plant for a long, long time, like the ducks. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I'd love to know what those duck drawings are like now, because yeah, whether, I'd, whether I'd got the essence of mallard at the <laughs> age of five or something like that, I don't know. Actually, that sounds like something from a strange restaurant, doesn't it? Essence of Mallard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Foie gras, essence of Mallard. Yeah. Um, yes. Yeah, so, so when you were saying about the essence of, that seems to sort of lead in to the other element which I see in your work is is this design element, which seems to come from a far loftier or a far more effective uh, affected. That's a terrible word, but you know what I mean. You 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 are. That's kind of your realm so so for instance which is why your your stuff lends itself so e- so easily to becoming design and wallpaper and, and yeah. or so many different things so you 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 kind of warp our viewpoint you know in the essence of picasso in a sense that you warp the viewpoint i think is that fair to say yeah i think also by simplifying through studying it and then simplifying it you that's how a I suppose I'm not saying that I am a good designer. That's how good design works. You you take elements from it which have impact, and actually being a printmaker helps with that because the different processes you use to make a print mean that you often um, approach your drawing to say, "Well, this is going to be cut as a lino cut. Therefore, I want flat areas of colour. I want hard edges. I'm going to create texture in this way." So by doing that, you're automatically sort of designing 
with mm. from your original sketches. So I think the transition from producing a print that can go or a watercolor that can go on the wall to a design that could be a wallpaper or fabric. It's it's being a printmaker really helps with that process, and mm. process is a, quite an important part of what I do. Um, yeah, because and you also have you have, clearly have a love for this particular era of design. Um, I, I think um, we mentioned this gentleman whose name yeah. I permanently forget before. Yeah. Um, that I have the coronation mug at home, uh, and you yeah. use that quite often as props yes. in order to present your stuff. Now, where is where does that come from? Well, that came. Basically, when I was at college, I completed my degree, had the degree show, walked out of the college, which which used to be on the corner of Southampton Row and Theobald's Road, went down to Museum Street, and there was this very expensive second-hand bookshop. Um, right. And they got a book about Edward Borden, who was a close friend of Eric Revillius. And I bought this book because... It was just the most amazing work. He was a printmaker and designer. And it was that sort of um, ability that he had, that Revillius had, and a lot of people from their generation who were at the Royal College at the same time, they crossed over from fine art into design, applied design, absolutely seamlessly. And there was no stigma to it. It was just very, very natural. And I'd always liked that thing of applying what I do to other processes. So... I'd say Revillius and Borden were just the perfect example of this because they really understood how to design for industry. So when Revillius designed, did the drawings that go on that coronation mug, it's so good because he knew what could be achieved on ceramic. He was working with really great people at Wedgwood who produced the engraved um, transfers for the Mm. mug. But but he really understood. And I think that's always fascinating me because... I like things that have a stage, have stages to it. You know, that you've got process, which is why I like printmaking. Um, right. I don't know whether that kind of almost reflects, like when you're making music. You know, you you might do some, play something, then it's mm. transferred. I mean, I don't really know much about the process, but by the time it's actually recorded, mm. all those stages that you're going through all add to the end yep. product and how you yep. feel whilst you're making it. So. That, yeah. yeah, definitely. People from that era, yeah. uh, Barnett Friedman is another great one. You just right. sort of, they just crossed through different boundaries um, creative, creatively, and I, and I just find that really inspiring. It's interesting you talk about the stages because uh, I was just thinking as you said that about the stages within music, and, and I find a lot of them agony. Uh, I find the stages agony. I find I find it like sometimes like drawing blood. There's the there's the initial sort of eureka moment when something beautiful happens, and quite often I start with improvisation. So I'll sit down and I'll record a bunch of stuff. And these days I've got enough facility I can record it as it happens, and I can record it well. Yeah. But then I have the editing process of deciding what what is the language, what, what is the uh, what's the good stuff and what's the mm. bad stuff, um, and that is the bit that actually sometimes I have to take two months away from just to understand what on earth has happened because there's so much information there. Um, and then the knot in the stomach grows as I as I realise I've got more and more choices to make. I think I'm a bad decision maker. I think Eric reminds me of Eric Morecambe. Apparently he was a dreadful decision maker and I think I think I share that hideous yeah, talent. Well, it is hard but, knowing what to leave out and what to put in and what it is and, and how far you want to move away from your original idea. Mm. Because quite often with a print, I can start off with a sketch and the end product can be so different because the process has carried me, carried me away. And in the end, yeah. you want to make the best print you possibly can, regardless mm. of your starting point. Yeah. So do you find that with something that you might have improvised, the end product can be so different to how you anticipated or do you not yeah, relate I, to it like that? Well, no, I do in a way. I was, I'm almost inclined to ask you how many dead ends you have. Do you do you have a lot of dead ends? Do you do you start stuff and and then go nah and and scrap it? Does that happen to you? Actually, not that often. I mean, no, I, I do a lot. Of... You it doesn't give me that impression. <laughs> your work. <laughs> well, I have a sketchbook, so I'll do. Say that I decide I'm going to do a wood engraving, and actually, the wood engraving blocks are certain sizes that you have made. So I've had mm. a block made 15 centimeters by 10, and so I then start doing ideas. I know what the subject I'm going to do, and I'll do it in the sketchbook, I'll do lots and lots of designs. Almost inevitably, the first design or ideas that I wrote down is the one that I'll go with. Yeah. 
Um, and once That's it's underway, it evolves through the mm. cutting and the printing and choosing the colours. It's not often that I think I'm just going to have to abandon this. I, I think right. I can count to the fingers of one hand how often that's actually happened with wow. a print. But that's, I think, maybe because I'm quite open to it right. not being what I intended when I set out. It generally well, has the... If I've been down by the River Spey drawing, it will have that quality, mm. but it, it, it'll somehow... Process does take over. And I think printmakers well, often find that. I'm in awe of your clarity of thinking then, really, because I think I think self-doubt just jumps in so often with me. I mean, I, I um, if I looked at all the, the dead ends that I had, I'd, pro- I'd probably, I've never counted it, but I'd probably be dismayed. It, it, it's just a sort of, um, and, and what all, all, always, almost always happens is when I go back in six months' time, I go, that's really good. Yeah. Why? Why did I abandon it? So do you do you do you recognise that? That happens a lot. That happens a lot because actually, and I think I do have dead ends in that I'll be working, and think I cannot get the colours, I cannot get it to work, and Mm. I think the key, which which I can find really hard to do, is I'm just going to put it away and not look at it. What Mm. I can end up doing is just labouring it and labouring it. And actually, with printmaking, it's quite dangerous because you could have printed three colours and then put your fourth colour on and it's wrong. And possibly in your mind, you're thinking, this isn't quite right, but you can't stop yourself. <laughs> so that ab- yeah. ability to put it away in a drawer, mm. and I pick things out of drawers, often lots of sketches that never get turned into prints or paintings. Mm. And I'll pull it out from years ago and think, did I do that? Mm. And if you ever have that feeling, you think, I Absolutely. don't even remember doing it. Because yeah. I was um, listening to a talk by this nice called Victoria Crow, who's a really good painter, a, a Scottish mm-hmm. painter. And she seemed, when she was talking, she could remember every piece of music she was listening to for whichever painting or print she was working on. Oh, wow. And that's not me. There's lots of my work that sort of just disappears into yeah. the ether. It could have been um, evolved, uh, worked up into something else, but it mm. just sort of falls by the wayside mm. i think that's inevitable yeah absolutely well one thing one thing i do recognize about you is is is, is that it, you are entirely driven um by your passion and it seems to me your life is guided by i mean you have st jude's which mm. again um extends your i mean you 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 patronize other artists don't you i mean you you encourage them you you give them a platform yeah um and that's become a movement within itself i mean is 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 that something that simon takes on more or is it a, is it is that a joint venture yeah he definitely takes more on board with the sort of um the organization the marketing yeah. the design aspect of it mm. um mm. and we'll... but was that a burning passion in you <clears throat> to, to to provide that platform because you bought the yeah. gallery, didn't you? So yeah. Well, that was an accident. I mean, honestly, because <laughs> people sort of say, tell us about how it all evolved, how you developed the brand. You think totally organically, randomly um, developed, really, because we, I'd always wanted to design fabrics and wallpapers. I'd always liked the idea of doing that. So we decided we would do it rather than me designing for somebody else and they choosing the colourways and taking control. So we actually had two designs printed up, which are the first dandelion designs. And then these huge rolls of fabric arrived at our cottage in Norfolk. And we thought, where are we going to put these? Um, So there was a shop for rent in the local town. So we just basically thought, this sounds good. And then we thought, well, how... I didn't want it to become a vanity project of just Angela and fabrics. We thought, let's think back to the era, sort of certainly post-war, there were companies called David Whitehead and uh, Edinburgh Weavers who worked with artists like Henry Moore and John Piper to get artists to design fabrics. So we looked for other artists who had the same sort of aesthetic as us. Mm. Um, And it's been brilliant because actually you get that... um, interaction with other artists as well with their designs. I was going to say there must be a vibrancy that comes from that that, that fuels what you do it must, it must invigorate you yeah. and revive you at times yeah. I would imagine just having that around you yeah and you're watching their their thought processes we they mm. you know we don't sort of prescribe this is the colour palette for this season we're not that sort of company we only produce a few designs a year so they have completely mm. free reign um, mm. to choose colourways and things so you just mm. get to um yeah, just collaborating with people is a really positive thing. And, you know, me and Sam both have very different skills, as you can right. tell by him having to set all this up. So <laughs> That's right. he, um And the Moog keyboard and the bass guitar I can see on the wall there and everything yeah. else. And Simon's <laughs> clearly 
musical. Yeah, it's, it's like a whole different strand, you know, and mm. creative in, in different ways. Mm. So, yeah, the St Jude's thing has been a really positive thing. And we also, you know, do publications and, and also music as well. So it's... Mm. Yeah, it's, it's it's good. It's good to keep things fresh. I can't imagine being the sort of person that only worked as a wood engraver. That yeah. was it. Mm. Um, well, this sort of touches on on the the essence of of what this means to you. I mean, I know that's an extremely broad question because you know we never really stop and think about what it means to you. Um, but I guess just a little bit of background. What did your parents do? Because you were raised in Cheshire, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so my dad was an engineer, originally a blacksmith. His father had been a blacksmith. Um, it's probably bizarrely, he was a blacksmith for a circus, my grandfather. Really? So we've got <laughs> black and white photographs of him stood by an elephant at Sanger's Circus. Um, and he was the village blacksmith. And my dad took over and then that evolved into a little light engineering business. Mm. And I've got three older brothers, two of which are in engineering and others an, an economist. And um, my mum was uh, looked after us at home. Um, mm. She didn't work. She worked originally before she met my dad. Um, so there wasn't really an artistic sort of background. She didn't have a penchant for it or, or a pain? No, not at all. I mean, the only thing I ever think is sometimes you used to look at the little sketches my dad used to make if he was going to make a mm. gate or something, because he did wrought iron work. Um mm. I wonder whether he did have a design element to him, but they, it wasn't the kind of background where they were ever going to find out if they had yeah. an artistic background, an artistic talent, because they were from a very working class background. Sure. Um, but you were drawing these mallards, so was, did they instantly recognise this as something that you had in, had in you, or did they just presume that was just a child drawing mallards? Yeah, I think I think they were pretty down to earth, but. <laughs> so I don't think they sort of thought, oh, you know, she's obviously, you know, really you know, talented at drawing or whatever. Yeah. But they were very supportive. And actually, I was the youngest of four and um, we lived away from other people. Um, and we're in the village, but on this little little lane, which just had four houses. So right. I was very much on my own as a child, apart from when I was at school. So yeah. that evolved into this the way that I... Um, spent a lot of my time drawing um right. and maybe when you've this is your fourth child you're probably thinking great she's keeping herself busy <laughs> um you know <laughs> yeah I, right yeah can, i can sympathize with that yeah. <laughs> yeah and and then that i mean within your school work i mean how do you end up in london studying art and design then from that um well i think Ultimately, I did always want to go to art school. And there are certain mm. things all the way through your childhood where you think, oh, I want to be, I think what else I did want to be. But I kind of knew that I wanted to go to art school. I went to quite an academic school and they were not very positive about the art department. In fact, it was, you know, teachers were nice, but it was not, it was not an important part of the school. They expected everyone mm. to go to uni, basically. Um, but I was went on a foundation course um, and... I just knew I wanted to go to London. That was one thing I knew, actually, mm. that I really, really wanted to go to London. Mm. Um, so that was obviously my first choice to go to Central. Um, yeah. And I don't regret spending all that time in London for one minute. I absolutely loved it. Yeah. I, I, so, I mean, there must be a moment. Is it, I, have a, I had a eureka moment, I suppose. My eureka moment was... Um, just joining a soul band when I was 13 because I, I was trained uh, um, uh, uh, classically and then rebelled quite badly and I was rebelling I was rebelling quite badly age 13 and then yeah. this band came along and then just took me forward it doesn't sound like you've ever hesitated I mean it just sounds like was there a moment when you thought well no I am going to do this this is this is this is just who I am um I suppose when I was in the sixth form I, there was a chance I was going to do history. So I did go to look oh. at... Oh, fine subject. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> and so I yeah. went and looked at different unis mm. to apply for history. Um, and that went quite well. But I can just remember walking out of this interview that I'd had, because it was when you, I don't know what, what the situation is now when you apply for uni, but I went and had interviews at each place prior to my A-level results. And I just walked out thinking, that went quite well, but... I just can't see it. I cannot mm. see it mm. or what I'm going to do. And then I went to look around a couple of art schools and the minute I walked into Central, 
I just thought, I'm coming here. Right. It's an absolutely beautiful building, the old Central School. If you had ever been in it, it was... I, I don't believe I have, actually. Absolutely no. stunning. I think it's it's been closed down for a few years now because it's all moved up to near King's Cross. Um, I just walked through the door, walked into the studio, and just the smell of all the paint and the inks. And um, I actually mm. went there to do sculpture, weirdly. Um, and I just thought, yeah, I know I want to come here. Yeah. Mm. And I knew I wanted to come to London because a girl that I was mm. at school with had moved to London the year before and I'd been going down to stay with her in Wimbledon and just yeah. thinking, I really like, you know, proper city life. That's what I wanted. Yeah. Do, do, you, do you feel that what you do drags you through life by the nose and has completely coloured and painted everything that you do? Or do you feel that you've got any control over it? How, how oh, reliant God. are you? How how reliant are you on it, or how how does it completely guide? I mean, down to who you married. I mean, and and everything else. Yeah. I mean, every decision that you've made has it been has it has it led the way? I'd say it probably has actually. Yeah, <laughs> I say it has. Right. I think it controls um, because I've always drawn virtually every day of my life. The things that I draw and paint relate to the landscapes and the place that I like to be in. Um, and I feel very centred when I'm working. It's not always good. I mean, I'm, you know, honestly, there are times when you're working and it isn't going very well. Mm. But it's where I'm most um, confident, I suppose. Mm. Um, yeah. I and never feel protect- weird. But I always feel right when I get my sketchbook out and I've got my pencils and I can start to draw. Something yeah. comes, makes me feel centred. Mm. And and if you're having a a bad day, you know, to to put it mildly, say, mm. does that affect what you do? Do you sometimes n- n- just not pick the pencil up? Has it ever been that bad? I think actually you can use it in two ways, really, because actually if you are having a very very bad time or a very sad time or something like that, mm. it's very helpful to have a creative process. Mm. Um, and it doesn't matter if what you produce isn't actually right. It's just the mm. process of being able to do it can be very comforting and yeah. grounding. Um, yeah. And then when you're feeling very positive, it's a very positive thing. So I think it can, it's one of those things that it can um, help you through whatever mood you're in. Yeah. Funny enough, as I'm just talking to you, I'm just reminded of something I've completely forgotten about, which is 10 days before, it's quite macabre really, but 10 days before my mum died, I suddenly, it's very unlike me, but I suddenly hired a studio, an expensive studio with a grand piano in it. Um, and it didn't phase me that I was just potentially just going to, I didn't I didn't have a commercial outlet for it, but I went and sat down and I, I, without any planning. And I just thought this is going to be, this is what this is for, mm. I had, for being cathartic. And so I sat down and I played and I got someone to record it. And as it happened, they didn't record it particularly well. So I didn't get particularly good recordings, but they're listenable. And um, and I wrote 12 pieces. I improvised 12 pieces and, and I named yeah. each one of them. Like I named one of them riding on the back of your bike, you know, cause, just because I had these little yeah. flashpoint memories. Yeah. Um, and it was wonderful. And it's only for me. I mean, I've, mm. I've never published it. I've never um, – but – yeah. It showed me. It showed me how interlinked they are. Yeah, I think it is. And maybe you did it to because you knew that you were in a vulnerable place and a sad place. It made mm. you. It was being good to yourself. Yeah. Um, and also, a, a way, it's it's all both subconscious. I'm sure, but I completely get that because also when when you go through a sad period, or when I go through a sad period, sometimes the work becomes much more colourful. Yeah. And I oh, don't yeah. know whether it's because I. Yeah. When when things are going great, you can almost pare things down. Everything can be, you know, spiky and dry looking and dead looking. And but then when things aren't going so well, something comes through. And you, maybe you're instinctive. I'm instinctively spotting a plant which might be a very strong red or a strong pink. Mm. And I need that, and then that's that becomes included in my work. So I think yeah, it reminds reminds me of a blues harmonica player I knew who used to write songs and he said he could never write the blues when he had the blues. Yeah. He could only write the blues when he was happy. Yeah. Uh, which is a ridiculous irony. But and, and as you say, maybe that sitting down at that piano, much like you sitting down with your sketchbook or it, it is yeah. such a safe place. Yeah. Is it? I mean, I, I think it is. I think I, 
I think I hide within the piano. Yeah. I used to say I hide. I used to, it reminds me of when I was when I was a kid. I used to say that I, I, I reflected on how I hid inside the noise. When my mum had the vacuum cleaner on, I used to feel safe. Yeah, the, the safety of white noise around me. Yeah, um, and I, I always feel safe with oh, the vacuum what, cleaner. Oh, because people gone. couldn't hear you because the vacuum cleaner. Yes, it's like, or rather, sound couldn't get in that mm. I can that I wasn't controlling. And mm. in recent years, I've started listening to music on headphones as I go to sleep, and I now can't without having music going on. And and I've noticed that if I sleep with silence, there's a part of my brain that is is permanently disturbed by my lack of control over the sound coming in. I, I like yeah. I've almost trained sound to to lead me. Yeah. Um, as I say, by the nose. Um, in everything so I'm, I'm almost it's almost an anxiety can come from um, not controlling the noise or or it's just a case of when when I sit down at that piano it's it's when I feel the safest because I really am controlling my environment yeah and, and I wonder if it's like that for you I mean you, I mean you literally are mm. in a created environment I mean I've seen pictures of you and you know, I kneeling down in long grass and just is there a, is there a magic in that moment yeah, I, th- I think it is probably, and it's the sense of purpose as well when you're working and you're in that environment, and it's why you're there. Because mm. um, actually, a few years ago, I did an artist residency in Spain in the mountains in Andalusia, and one of the things that happened there was that I basically just had a beautiful studio and eight and miles to walk around this incredible landscape full of wildflowers, and all I had to do was was basically in the evenings mentor. Uh, there were th- three, six people on a course that was being taught by someone else. I just had to mentor them in the evening and they might come into my studio and I would talk to them. That's all I had to do. It was absolutely yeah, yeah. amazing. And they were <laughs> lovely people. It was the most amazing thing. Uh, and it was all, every day I would get up, go for the walk. Then it would get really hot so I'd be in the studio working. And I'd worked about half, seven, eight at night and then we'd all eat. I thought, mm-hmm. this, is a, this is my purpose this actually is what I do. And one of the Amer- an American women was on the course said this. She said, you're like a little, I said, you're like a little bug that sits on the ground, draws all the plants. She said, this is what you do. And I said, well, yeah, I feel justified in what, I didn't need to feel justified, but I thought this is what I do. It's, um, and I am in control of it. It's not that I don't, I feel out of control of the rest of my life, but it's certainly the way of, in my life that I can, um, express myself and feel yeah. relaxed um, and I know what you mean about the noise control thing is a sort of similar sort of thing is if there's nobody else in that landscape it's it's ah. I'm in control of it it's just me um, we're back to the solitary beach then really yeah we're I, full circle yeah and I think <laughs> were you were you quite a solitary child did you focus on your inst- playing the piano all the time when you were a child yeah, I mean, I, I had a very intense relationship. It was just me and my mum mm. um, in a little masonette in Hayes. Um, so uh, I was, you know, I, I've got classic solitary child, single child syndrome. I mean, I'm, I think the world revolves around me to some yeah. extent. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, and, but I also created solo games. Um, and I'm the only person I know who played cricket entirely solo throughout my childhood yeah. I used to bowl bat and the whole thing against yeah. walls and had contraptions set up I had a, a like a, a there was a, a bunch of bushes at the end of my garden and in there was my you know my I could go into the um the the, uh, the the prehistoric era um in there that was where I kept all my my weapons and everything else and then yeah. I was uh, <coughs> excuse me the garden the garden reflected all my interests of the time because I I still do it. I go through p- real pangs of interest. So it would be it would be the prehistoric era. It would be nature, and then it would be um, I would become a wildlife cameraman in my back garden. So I used to get a little cardboard box and put a toilet roll through it to make the lens, oh. and I'd film my cats. Yeah. So I'd build hides, and then and then and then you know like all boys, a war game was um, making my way from the end of the garden to the kitchen where my mum was without the cat seeing because they were the guards. Yeah. You know, and all that stuff. So these really intense. You see, that all sounds uh, very game. familiar. You know, because although right. I've got the three brothers, there's quite a big age gaps. My oldest yeah. brother was already at uni very shortly after I started primary school. So I just didn't really, I was basically on my own. And um, I would do sort of similar things. I would sort of spend all my time in the garden, dissecting plants, sitting on the ground, looking at the plants, uh, Mm. building dens in the garden, and also doing, you know, entirely playing games on my own. Um, And I'm sure having more, and I did have friends occasionally that would, 
come round, but it'd, be, it'd actually be quite rare. In those yeah, days, too. you didn't think my child needs to go on a play date, my child needs to see a... Yeah. You know, you just... That was just how it was. And sure. so many artists, writers, musicians that I know have that similar childhood. Mm. And I think that... Mm. And sometimes boredom was quite intense. But I yeah. think it was quite I, good for quite good for you. I, yeah, I agree. Does it? Do you think... It, do you find that you're emotionally self-sufficient or at least you attempt to be because that's how you're used to dealing with things? Yeah, yeah, I think I probably am, yeah. Right. So so what I happens when so. someone... Tr- <laughs> what happens when someone tries to come in and help? Um, I don't, I don't quite... <laughs> no, I am. No, I am. Um, I think I, I'm very happy in my own company. Yeah. Um, I don't sort of... I don't... F- worry too much if I'm not socialising all the time, to be absolutely mm. honest. I, I'm very sociable on my own terms, I suppose, and I do enjoy being sociable, but then I really need time to myself. Yeah, um, that's right. I find it a bit intense if people are with me day after day after day. I think I would find that really, really hard. I, and that, So that's why the, the, the job that I have is absolutely perfect, and I, I just found my way into it instinctively because of it. That's right. Well, it is chicken and the egg. I mean, I mm. do think that about the piano. Am I designed this way? Because it's it, it does require such long moments of, of yeah. uh, solitary confinement. And also um, intensely, to, to get to the level that you're at and at the age that you got to this level, you must have worked so hard at it, hour as a child. after hour. Oh, yeah. Oh, that, that, that's that's the battleground of my childhood was my mother forcing me to uh, practice and me saying, no, I don't want to do that. I want oh. to go and be a wildlife cameraman in the garden. I didn't, I, I, there were periods where it really caught me and I got it. Um, they tended to be around public performance. If I had a public performance, because I, I was, I was sort of thrust onto the stage quite early playing yeah. classical music with orchestras and things. Um, so how old were my, you? The young, when you first did well, it? Well, I did, well, I did, um, I did a, a concert at the Queen Elizabeth Hall on the South Bank when I was eleven, um, and, oh, and it was um, wow. it was piano concerto. It was Shostakovich's piano concerto number no. two, and and it was basically because my my, fa- uh, my father my <laughs> it was a Freudian slip actually. I mean, my piano teacher was this enormously influential man yeah. called Mister Stevenson. He was about six foot nine, and he smoked a pipe and he just bellowed at me, and he taught me for nothing. He was a very generous man. Yeah. taught me for nothing and, and nurtured me for this role, and I think wanted to prove a point somewhat mm. that he could go to dodgy old Hayes or Hillingdon Borough, as it was, uh, was and 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 produce mm. and find and produce this kid from the. You know, I suppose in in academic terms, the wrong side of the track. Yeah. Um, I was talking to someone about it the other day. I think they did the same with Albert Finney. You know, they sent him to RADA. There was a group of people oh, behind right, him. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think I was a bit of an experiment, but it was an experiment that worked. I mean, it made me the neurotic mess I am today, but it, it worked. <laughs> and and I I was classically yeah. trained to a, to a ridiculous degree. Yeah. And given that, but you know, ultimately the the the. You can take the boy out of haze, but not haze out of the boy. And uh, and I ended up rebelling and, and doing it my way. But yeah. it, it's worked out for me. Yes. Um, but you're right. You know, intensely long periods of of solitude um, and and communicating with the outside world via the piano. Yeah. Um, simple as that. Um, uh, and that's what it's about, really, isn't it? I mean, that's what they yeah. do. It, that's why they do it to yeah. you is so that you can do that. Yeah. And also, um, it's interesting that you know, you then become known as the boy that plays the piano brilliantly. Um, mm. It's a bit like also why I find, go, say I go out to meet lots of new people, I find that, you know, relatively hard to do, which we all do if you have to go into a room full of people that you don't know and introduce mm. yourself, it's all quite difficult. But if I have to walk into a room and it's a private view with my work in, it's not an arrogant thing to say, oh, look at all this. It's like, I don't have to talk about me or yeah. worry about what people think of me because, look, this is me. Yeah. And actually, I find things like that, you know, I don't have to worry about. I'm notoriously badly dressed and poorly views. Because I think <laughs> it doesn't really matter, does it? No. Because. Good point. And, and mm. I find that really positive. Um, mm. It's if you have to go out socially and then I explain what I do. That's often the really oh. weird stuff. Oh, the dinner party. Oh, yeah. the nightmare of the. What do you do? Oh, really? I can't yeah. be bothered. Please yeah. don't. You know, I mean, you know, you're not going to be interested. I can't explain no. it. I mean, you know, I can't explain what I do, really. I know it's, it looks on paper as if it's simple. I, I do music, but it's not. And, and it would, you know, what, I don't know. And also, if you're in the arts or in any way, mm. you can easily sound very conceited yeah. and very arrogant. You know, I'm doing what I love. Well, you know? yes. 
Or Don't you people, realise who I think I am? Yeah, I mean, that's it. It could sound because I can remember it took me years to say that I was an artist because it did sound an awfully conceited thing to say. Mm. Um, and also, people often see you as doing it almost like as a hobby. Now, I don't know if they think that in the music industry the same way, but I've actually mm. you know, met people at dinner parties really quite mm. recently who've basically said, Oh, good luck with the art, love. <laughs> and I think, you know, and I can't quite believe they've said it. And it, it at the time, I just th- almost speechless, it still happens because yeah. it's not seen. Yeah. I think people perceive of people like Tracy Emin or yeah. Damien Hurst or other artists that's making big money as an artist. Mm. The concept that someone is an artist in a very sort of, all these different stratas of artists, doesn't occur to most people, I suppose. And maybe the music industry is similar. They know the absolute superstars, but not people all the way through the industry. It's the guy at my badminton club who who said to me, um, I was was listening to... um, James Blunt the other day. That must be a gig that you uh, you would sort of seek after, you know. You, you, and, I th- uh, and I sort of didn't know where to start. Really, you know, I, I, uh, no, no, not really, um, Steve. No, yeah. not really. Um, but I, I, I tend to shamelessly name drop at dinner parties just to get the conversation over with. Because if you give yeah. them a big name and you drop a big name, and they go, "Oh, right, that makes sense," and then they can get on with their dessert, you know, and it saves a lot of conversation. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but anyway, I, I, I think um, you know all our talk of. Um, solitude and uh, solitary confinement brings us beautifully back to the lockdown which is um it doesn't sound like it's you know too bad a place for either of us really if we get our heads straight and get our heads around it and concentrate on our chosen mediums no it's, um, no it's not i mean i think this it's just such a strange it's hard to even describe it it's such a strange strange time um and a terrible time but We've all got to find the, everybody's got to find the positivity within what's happened to them. And often quite a few people are saying they actually find the pace of life is better for them. And people are, I think, are reevaluating. So I think to have a creative process that you can carry on almost as normal during lockdown. And actually, my work's changed slightly during lockdown, which is quite interesting. Um, So I, yeah, I, I think I'm dealing with it pretty well. I think Simon's doing really pretty well. <laughs> Still here, well, you know. Well, look, I do appreciate you taking time out of uh, of your um, your work, yeah. you know, and to, to talk to me. And and I don't want to disturb you any longer. And I think I should let you get back to your art and your design and your flowers and your and your weeds and your beaches. And um, and thank you very much for talking to oh, me. Oh well, thank you. I've really enjoyed it. It's been brilliant. Yeah, me me too. We've met before at, at, at concerts before and various yeah. bits and pieces, but not we never sat down for a chat and I've really enjoyed it, so I appreciate it very much. Oh, well, thanks very much. It's a good to do. Thanks to Angie Lewin and thanks to you for listening. Please make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. 